Welcome to Tube Talk, the show dedicated to helping you become a better video creator so you can get more views, subscribers, and build your audience. Brought to you by vidIQ. Download for free at vidIQ.com. Oh, yeah! Welcome back to another episode of Tube Talk presented by vidIQ. I am your host, Viper, the man about executive producer of social media here at the IQ. And let's talk about YouTube short for a quick moment before we get into the podcast. Now, when I'm on these vidIQ live streams and different things like that, or I see y'all on the social medias and different things, some of y'all are still apprehensive about YouTube shorts. And rightfully so. For the first two years or so of YouTube shorts existence, I myself was apprehensive about whether or not I wanted to do them on my channel. For the longest time, I would not touch YouTube shorts with a 10-foot pole because I kind of felt like it would confuse my audience because I am a long-form video creator. My videos are usually five to eight minutes, and I felt like incorporating YouTube shorts would be kind of detrimental to my YouTube growth. But when you see how much YouTube has put into the YouTube shorts experience, right? We've been on this short train for, what, almost two, three years now? And they built the bridge between long form and short form to the point where now if someone watches your YouTube shorts, they could be recommended your long form videos and different things like that. YouTube shorts are even searchable. Not to mention the fact that YouTube is heavily pushing YouTube shorts. So I'm going to go on record and I'm, I'm probably already am on record for saying it. But let me say it again on the podcast. If you are a small creator and you're lamenting your channel growing slowly, or you feel like you're not getting the views, this, that, and the other, you're just not getting the growth as fast as you thought you might get your channel growing. If you want to accelerate your YouTube channel growth, you need to be looking into YouTube short. Why, you might ask. Because again, YouTube is heavily pushing short. They announced recently that shorts has 50 billion daily views. 50 billion shorts are being viewed every day. Now, how many people are watching those shorts? I don't know. But 50 billion shorts are being viewed on a daily basis, which means YouTube is pushing them out there. So why not take a chance on putting out a YouTube short or two to get those eyes on your content? I'm not saying you have to become a short creator. No, 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 no. What I'm saying is that YouTube shorts right now are a lot like playing the lottery. Put a couple of them out there. You never know which one might go potentially viral and get more eyes on your channel. A lot of creators out there today on YouTube are accelerating their YouTube growth because they are implementing YouTube shorts into their plan. Even long-form creators are now starting to implement YouTube shorts into their content strategy. So I think the time for being afraid of adopting YouTube shorts is over. I think there's a lot of opportunity to adopt them into your strategy whether you want to go all in or whether you just want to dip your toe in the water. I think now's the time to go out and experiment a little bit with YouTube Shorts and see if they can help you accelerate your channel growth. However, on today's podcast, we're going to talk about a question that I saw being asked on Twitter earlier today. Are unpaid internships worth it? That is the question we're going to tackle on the podcast because I feel like this can apply to creators and non-creators alike. We're going to talk about working for free and what that can and can't do for you. And I'm going to be joined by the legend himself, 
Mr. Roberto Blake, and we're going to both talk about the idea of working for free and doing unpaid internships. So with that, let me calm down and let's roll to the podcast. Welcome back to Tube Talk presented by vidIQ. And this week, we have an old friend returning to the podcast. So let me just get right into it. Bring back the man, the creator, entrepreneur, the emperor himself, Roberto Blake is back. Hey, Roberto, how you doing, sir? How you doing today, Viper? I'm doing good, man. I want to thank you for making the time for this podcast. This should be a very interesting conversation, so thank you. I always have time for you, my friend. And I appreciate you. So I saw something this morning on the internet. Our good friend Trenton did a poll on Twitter. Poll goes, are unpaid internships worth it? So I want to talk about that on the podcast because I feel like, you know, especially a lot of creators, they feel like they want to make sure that they maximize their worth. They don't want to be taken advantage of by brands and different things like that. But this is a conversation that goes beyond creators also. But I personally feel like unpaid internships are worth it because especially when you're trying to get a job, Roberto, I think, as you know, the number one thing that companies look for when you are trying to get a job out there is experience, whether it be unpaid internship, paid internship, they want experience. And in my opinion, Roberto, this experience trumps any degree that you might have. It trumps any certifications that you get. They want experience over everything. So if you have an opportunity to do an unpaid internship, if it gets you the relevant experience to get into a career, then by all means, take advantage of that. Now, I do understand that unpaid internships are basically not everybody can take advantage of them depending on their life situation. If you're a grown adult with a full-time job and things like that, maybe that's not something that you can do. But if you're a young person still in high school or coming into college and different things like that, then you might be more available to take advantage of an unpaid internship. But just curious to get your thoughts on the whole unpaid internship versus paid internship and where your mind is at with this. Have you heard me say the concept you have to qualify for the life that you want, Viper? I heard this, yes. Yeah. And you've heard me also say that as nice as it would be, the world doesn't owe you any understanding. Yep. Your lifestyle situation will determine what opportunities are available to you. And it's not the responsibility of the world to make every single opportunity that exists available to every single person that exists. So the fact that like, if they don't pay something, then I can't afford to do it because of X, Y, Z. Well, if they did pay for that position, they still might not pick you or qualify you because now the goalpost, you're asking them to say, don't move the goalpost on this thing that I could theoretically do because it doesn't require experience, but then also pay me. So you're asking them to come down to meet you where you are. The world doesn't owe you coming down to meet you where you are. You have to rise to the occasion, as they say, and that's where qualifying for the things you want comes in. This is why also I believe it extends the conversation of you shouldn't work at every company because the company shouldn't change its culture to accommodate or fit the employees. People who want to work there should understand what the culture is and say, that's exactly where I want to be. Those are exactly the values that I have. And they should go where they will be treated best. And they should go to the place that aligns with their values. I don't think that company and a CEO or the leadership should change their values or be flexible on their boundaries and their requirements to accommodate everybody. I don't believe in that. I don't think that that's the case. Here's the thing. You have to qualify in life. A primary example, my father's a Marine. Mm -hmm. You have to pass the ASVAB test to be in the military and you have to pass military PT. You have to meet the physical fitness requirements. If yep. you can't lift this much, run this fast, do this amount of pull-ups, sit-ups, push-ups, so on and so forth, you're not physically qualified to serve in the United States military. And I don't think that standard should be lowered. In fact, it probably should be raised in many cases. So 
I don't think it should be lowered so that more people have the opportunity. I think more people should qualify for that opportunity by doing the work that the job calls for. Because when you can't do the work that the job calls for, somebody else either picks up your slack or the paying customer suffers a lower quality result or service. So when it comes to like things like working for free, if your life situation says that the only opportunities available to you are the ones you have to prioritize, the ones that pay you, that is a you problem. That is like your life situation, and your circumstance. But people will do things that don't make them money all the time and spend time and effort on that and feel justified, even though they make no money doing that and they gain no experience doing that and they don't improve their career options doing that. They'll spend time and money doing it and say it's okay because it's their entertainment, it's their hobby, it's how they're managing stress. And it's not like people 30 years ago didn't have to manage stress, but maybe didn't have the ability to do things you're doing to manage your stress. So that means that stress can be managed while doing those things. So people are just justifying Netflix, Xbox, whatever it is. They're justifying doing that, making zero dollars, letting a company make money from their time, not bettering their situation, not learning, not getting valuable experience, And they feel that if any company profits from their labor, that it's exploitative. When I would argue, you can't afford to pay to be more educated about this. So if it doesn't fit your life, it doesn't fit your life. Go where your life circumstances are accommodated the best. Go where you're treated the best. Go where you're respected. And if you want to be valued for your time, so be it. I'm not saying you can't. I'm saying a company doesn't owe you that if they aren't offering it go to one that does. Mm. That is good. I love how you put that because a lot of times we do try to put like a one-size-fits-all situation into things that it does not apply. And like you said, if one company is offering something that you feel like it's unfair or doesn't fit your lifestyle at that time, then you need to go find another company that does fit your criteria because every company is not going to fit your ideal situation or your ideal criteria. Just like you're not going to fit every company criteria and ideal qualifications and situations. So, it's up to the individual at that point to go and try to figure out what situation works and fits in their lifestyle the best, and then try to go in and adapt that for sure. If you want to work for a creator, it's not your place to tell them that the workflow should be DaVinci Resolve. If they're a Premiere Pro or Final Cut user, it's not right. your place to dictate that everybody needs to now move to DaVinci Resolve because that's what you learn to edit the best on if they're already Final Cut Pro in their workflow or Adobe Premiere Pro in their workflow. They don't owe you that accommodation or that understanding to say, oh, we're going to change our workflow to include this software because it's the one that you're good at and you can't get the position otherwise. We're not doing that. That doesn't make any sense. To bring it back to kind of like content creators so content creators can understand, if you're a content creator, your team needs to get on your system. They need to get in line with your plan. You can be nice and there are accommodations that you can make There are things you can do, but you need to have some boundaries and standards. And we have this culture of entitlement now where everyone thinks that they're only their own boundaries, standards, and requirements matter and that everyone should accommodate them, but they're not willing to understand that they exist in a world where other people have boundaries, other people have standards, other people have requirements, and they will exclude you and disqualify you based on not meeting those. And that's okay because there's things you don't want to bend on and there's things other people don't want to bend on. And if they have the leverage, they don't owe you meeting in the middle. Yeah, you're right. It all depends on uh, who has the leverage. Like you said, if they have the leverage, then it's up to you to try to get on their level. And if you can't, then you got to go somewhere else. 
if you don't qualify for this opportunity, why wouldn't I just give it to someone who does? Oh, you can't work for free because of your life circumstances. Okay, cool. What about the other 30 candidates? Oh, well, yep. out of the other 30 candidates, there are people who are not going to like, you know, be eating ramen if they take this opportunity. So maybe it's meant more for them and maybe it's you. I think that this is FOMO Viper. I think that in a lot of cases, well, I can't do that. Well, if you can't do that, then you don't qualify for that. Well, no, I should be able to be qualified for that. No, that's FOMO. You want that because other people in a different life situation than you can have that, but that's not realistic. This episode of Tube Talk is brought to you by vidIQ's competitors tool. Checking in on what your competition is doing can be a great way to keep up with trends in your area of expertise. If you have vidIQ installed, you can find this tool on the left-hand sidebar within the YouTube studio, and from there, you can begin adding channels as your competitors. I like to select a range of channels, from the ones that I find to be the leading voices in my niche, all the way down to channels that get similar views to my own. The way that this helps me personally is that I can start to actually detect patterns in the types of videos that my competitors are releasing, which helps me discover some fresh ideas that are already proven to be working. The vidIQ extension works in both Chrome and Firefox browsers, and you can download it for free at vidIQ.com. So just to bring this back to the creator base here. Yeah. I got my very first brand deal on YouTube, or actually, not even on YouTube, but I got my very first brand deal via Clubhouse because I was willing to come into Clubhouse room and talk about my YouTube experiences. And when I was talking about those experiences, I wasn't getting paid. I wasn't making money off of that. I was just lending my experience being on YouTube for three years in these Clubhouse rooms. Yeah. And somebody from vidIQ was in the room listening to me. And they heard me coming in these rooms night after night talking about my YouTube experiences. And they liked what I was trying to tell these people. And they were like, they, that's when they ended up sending me an email like, like, hey, Viper, how would you feel about hosting a room for us? And because of that, I signed a contract with them for them to pay me $10,000 a year to host a room yep. once a week on Clubhouse talking about YouTube stuff. So this is why I keep saying, right? Don't be afraid to work for free because my going into those room, given my time and my experiences on YouTube, ended up in me signing a $10,000 contract. And it's interesting. I definitely want to get your thoughts on this because I heard you tell a creator in one of your Twitter faces recently. I think the creator had like 700 subscribers and he was asking like, when should I start going after brand deals? And you were like, don't do that. You need more experience. Yeah, exactly. If you do things when you're not experienced, that's actually where you will get taken advantage of and exploited because everyone's thing is like, well, this is exploitative or this is, it's like people put themselves in exploitative situations because they go into situations without leverage. It's your responsibility to gain leverage and wisdom, frankly, and experience so that you're not exploited. If you go into a situation unprepared, then you don't have the ability to understand what the reality is and to know what is good for you and what isn't. And that means someone can finesse you. Someone can make something sound much more appealing than it is. And while, oh, in a perfect world, they wouldn't do that, but it's not a perfect world. And you have the responsibility of knowing what's a good idea and what's a bad idea for your specific situation. Because by the way, what might feel exploitive for your situation may be an absolute blessing for somebody else's situation because it works for them. And they actually have something that they're more interested in getting than the other thing. For some people, what fills their piece of the puzzle won't be money. So for them, it's not exploitative. Even if they're not in a, that much of a better situation than you, it doesn't have to be a better situation. It just has to be a slightly different situation because we're not all the same, you know? So you can't universally say something is wrong universally because it may not be wrong for everyone. It might be wrong for you. And the thing is, it may not have been wrong for you if one little thing was different in your life, because then you'd be like, oh, yeah, 
because now this fixes the last piece of my puzzle. And that might be more important. And it's like, a, oh, I can find the money somewhere else. It's like, it's like, it sucks, but I can do it somewhere else. And like, but this I can't replace as easily as I can replace, oh, this dollar amount would make this really comfortable. It's wait, 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 I can replace that dollar amount really easy. What I can't replace is access to this person, this person, this person. I can't replace access to this resource here or this opportunity here or the hands-on or whatever it is, right? So that might for some people be the right thing. And I think you have to figure out what's right size in your life at what time. And that's what people are confused because I think everyone just, like you said, one size fits all, cookie cutter, like no. But that's your responsibility. So like a creator with like less than a thousand subscribers, am I saying that they could never get a brand deal? Well, no, that depends on your niche to some degree, but also you might not be ready for one because you also just in general may not also have the experience to sell very well to your audience, not just for the brand. You may not have the authority and experience with your audience for them to not reject you doing that brand deal. Mm. You need to know how to navigate your audience better. And part of the proof of you navigating your audience is the fact that you've been able to grow it. If you've been able to grow your audience, you've proven that your communication ability and presentation ability resonates with people to where they'll make some public commitment to you. That's why we qualify people for brand deals to some degree based on audience size, not because of reach per se. People could go viral with a small audience or they could be punching above their weight class. So the reach isn't the real issue. The issue is if you did get people to at least click follow, you've proven you can get people to engage and interact. And we have a number we can put that to. And we have a number of people that say that you served them well. So that's what we know. It's just a number of the people publicly vouching for you. So that's the credibility piece. That's the authority piece. And that also reduced like risk and certainty of working with a creator. And it's to some extent proof, not of experience, but at least experience plus ability because some action happened that we can measure. You get what I'm saying? I got it. Yep. So like that's valuable. The other thing is I would say that someone, even if you're small, if you can prove sales, if you can prove sales, you can prove you qualify for a brand deal. I did this when I was a small YouTuber. I used my affiliate sales with the Amazon influencer program to prove to brands that I can sell product and it doesn't matter what my views are. And we've seen that from creators, by the way, like our friends GameSki and El Jefe Reviews. They sell out entire categories in Amazon products, entire inventory gone because of their videos. They get less views than the greats like Marquez Brownlee, Dave2D, Linus Tech Tips, iJustine. They don't as often, they get massive views, millions of views, but they don't necessarily sell out an entire product category that they specialize in. Right. El Jefe can do that in the audio space and Gameski can do that in a lot of the accessory space. So technically T can do that in the case reviews space with regard and to in some uh, accessories as well. So a lot of times people get confused about what relevant experience and relevant results are. And if you got to work day in and day out with people who know what you don't know, know what questions you don't even know to ask, that they have the answers to questions you wouldn't even know to ask, that is valuable. And sometimes you can't pay for that Viper because you can't afford that, but you could trade for it. And what you're trading is your time and labor and your ability to do this work. And the thing is, if they are going to pay for people, you say, well, this big company can afford it or this big creator can afford it. Yeah, they can afford you. And they also can afford the best person in the world probably. 
So probably they'll just take that budget for the best person in the world. They don't need another grunt level person with no experience because if they're going to pay for somebody, they could just pay a sliver more for someone with a world of difference of experience than you. Mm, Absolutely. It kind of goes back to something I heard you say a bunch of times. You tell new creators they need to make a hundred crappy video before they like try to analyze what direction they want to go on YouTube. And I kind of equate that to what you were telling the guy about not going out the brand deals to add his stuff back because again, you don't have the experience. When you're that early in your creator career, again, do you know how to sell to your audience? Do you know how to make the product appealing to your audience? Do you know how to structure that type of video? Because again, when we're talking about a video that's a dedicated brand video or integration, there's a structure for that in place that you have to follow per the brand rules and the regulations and things like that. I don't know if you know how to do that as a small creator. I don't know if you can do that correctly. And also just doing the meetings and the back and forth and the yep. email and the revisions takes away time that you could have used to make three or four more other videos that your audience would have loved. Yeah, it's a lot that goes into that. So it's a big trade-off for a very small amount of money to do the brand deal. It's not worth it for most small creators to do the brand deal because the time and mental energy they lose in not just creating a purely authentic piece of content isn't usually worth the money and the price that they're able to command at the time. That's a matter of, again, understanding and being able to assess what a situation is right for you. And sometimes you need somebody to be able to tell you that. So like the free version of that is, oh, thank God I was able to hop on Clubhouse. Thank God I was able to get there in the early days when creators were rolling through and big people were coming through and dropping gems. Oh, thank God I came into this Twitter space that this 500K creator named Roberto was doing or whatever, and it didn't cost me any money to learn this thing or get one question I needed answer. But realistically, like people pay me hundreds of dollars for one coaching session for a reason, Viper, because for most of the people who have done it, they know that for the rest of their career, they're going to make infinitely more money than they paid because they're going to move forward. They know that this year alone, they're going to make another 100 videos. So if they pay less than $1,000 to be able to be informed about something, they're going to apply to 100 more videos that they're going to spend 10, 50, 100 hours per video on, then it's absolutely worth it in their mind for them. If they know, oh, I'm going to pay a couple hundred bucks for a workshop, for example, like if they go to my brand deals workshop, it's like $299. If they do that, not a sales pitch, by the way, but it's like, but if they do that, they know for a fact that, okay, I'm going to be negotiating brand deals for the rest of my creator career. I'm going to definitely make more than $300 if I even get one brand deal. So I know the ROI is easier. But now I also know how not to waste my time, not to waste the brand's time, how to ask for more, how to negotiate, how to price myself, what a media kit is. I know some terminology I didn't know. Oh, crap. I know that doing this is part of the legal requirements for disclosure and not saying myself, oh, I know that maybe if I'm going to work with brands and I'm going to take bigger money, oh, I should get some insurance in case I screw up. Oh, I should have this so that if the brand ends up screwing up, and I need to cut ties with the brand, I would have to delete my whole video. I can just do this and it'll be okay. Like those things are worth money to people for a reason, but oh, well that should like, I shouldn't have to pay for that. Uh, Well, your circumstance dictates that you can't afford it. That doesn't mean that's not worth it. And it's the same thing with trading your time for free. If your circumstance right now is that you can't trade your time for free, I'm not here to tell you, oh no, you should just work for free anyway. I will tell you this. If your situation is that bad, 
you shouldn't just not work for free. You should give up your hobbies. You should do what I did and just not do anything that's not monetizable other than read, rest, sleep, eat, and work out. You're new. Oh, I need to blow off steam. Go for a walk. You'll be healthier. Go to the gym. You'll be healthier. Read a book. You'll be smarter. Oh, I'm going to watch Netflix. No, you're going to watch or listen to a podcast while you're on the treadmill instead because you're going to be bettering your career and bettering your life instead of bettering the producer over at Netflix. Mm. You see what I'm saying? If your situation is so serious that you're going to say, I cannot afford to work for free in exchange for experience, I accept that as valid. But I'm also going to tell you, don't let me catch you on these streets playing Call of Duty. (laughs) Unless you're a Twitch streamer. That's real talk. If you're not monetizing it, I don't want to hear. Like, I just believe that if it's that bad, if it's that bad, then you should, everything you do should either be monetizable, make you physically healthy, make you mentally stronger, or you should be sleeping to regenerate your body. And that's what will improve your mental health. Netflix does not improve your mental health. You're overstimulating your mind playing video games. I'm not saying these things are bad inherently. I'm saying somebody's making money off of you. It benefits them more than you. And your life doesn't necessarily get better for more than 30 minutes at a time. And you could take that same 30 minutes and you could better your life long term in exponential ways. Literally, even if it's not, oh, uh, why, why do I have to monetize everything? It's like, okay, just take better care of your body and just feed your brain to make yourself smarter to qualify for new opportunities then to get new skills or new information. Listen, you all, would it be more ideal if you did an internship and got paid? Absolutely. I mean, that's the goal. That's the dream, right? But I want to record the podcast today because I want to let you all know that good things happen even when you work for free. I, I tell you guys all the time, don't be afraid to work for free because it could literally get you paid down in the long run. Me and Roberto have a mutual friend named River, right? She's mm-hmm. a writer, publisher, editor. And, you know, she was also in the clubhouse room, giving her experience and some different things like that. And she ended up working with Roberto on his book. Yep. And probably got paid pretty handsomely because yep. she was in those she got clubhouse paid rooms. What she, she got paid what she named her price and I paid it. Yep. I didn't even haggle. She named her price and I paid it and I didn't haggle. Boom. So again, when you're out there putting yourself out there and you're giving your experiences and your value to people, don't turn your nose up at the idea of working for free or not getting monetized for your time. Because again, that is something that could be turned into you getting paid, especially as a creative. You're putting yourself out there and people notice, then someone important might notice that as well. And you might get the email that I got or you might get the, the phone call that River got from Roberto. Like, listen, we want to pay you to do something. This dude, Josh... I think he was young at the time. This dude, Josh, he did something free for me as a fan, just as an appreciation art piece. I ended up DMing him on Twitter. And then for years and years, he kept getting hundreds of dollars of work from me. He probably off of doing like those three pieces of free artwork that got my attention. He probably made five grand that he wouldn't have made over the course of like a four or five year relationship. And probably actually more than that, because I actually recommended him to quite a few people. So doing like three pieces of free artwork for me over the course of like four years or so made him probably, he made five grand from me from referrals. He probably made more than $10,000 in referrals because mm. there were yeah. people who were like, who did that for you? Who did, oh, it's Josh. I'll hook you up with them and everything like that. And these were not small creators either. These were people with over a hundred thousand subscribers. So I know they likely paid him very well, you know? So from that perspective, that's an example of somebody in my community who probably made thousands of dollars. Cause like I wasn't even looking for an artist to do anything, you know? Right. And again, 
Josh like just named his price. It wasn't like some haggling thing we did. It's they named his price. And I was like, okay. And I get what for that or whatever. It's like, I think what actually happened was he told me what I got. I was like, well, I actually need, uh, instead of a set of three of these, I need a set of six of these. And he's like, okay, well, that'll be like this. And I'm like, okay, that's how much for six. Okay, let's do six. I was like, hey, I need another batch of six. Let's, you know, let's do that again. You know, so it, it's things like that. This kid did some artwork for Gary Vaynerchuk. I think he ended up getting $800 from me because I saw some free artwork he did as a fan of Gary V. And I was like, hey, I need some pieces like this or that. I hired him to make some custom artwork for some other creators that I wanted to give to them as a gift. And I told them who he was too. So like, and I don't know if he ever ended up working with those people, but he made like 800 bucks off of me because he did free work for somebody else that I admire. Mm-hmm. Just that simple. And some of y'all might get mad at this next bit, but I don't care. It's funny when creators in particular talk about how they're unwilling to work for free or they laugh at the notion because I'm sorry, but YouTube is literally the ultimate unpaid internship. Okay. <laughs> how hard do you work on your YouTube channel and make no money? None. It took me seven months to get monetized, and now I was an anomaly. That I probably happened quicker for me than most people. For most folks, I would imagine probably takes at least a year or two to get monetized on YouTube. So for at least one year, you are working your tail off on YouTube to get monetized. So don't tell me that you're not interested in working for free because most of y'all new creators, you're working for free right now on your channel trying to make it into something. So clearly you are hip to the idea of working for free because you are doing it with your channel. Like, come on now, let's, let's be real here. Seriously, Roberto. YouTube is like largely, and creators disagree with this and they're mad about this. YouTube is working for free largely as well, but it's actually really not. It's another trade because you know what's not free? Server hosting. I worked in web hosting. Hosting unlimited videos is really expensive. Oh, well, they can afford it. It's like, that's not the point. The point that they theoretically can afford it or, or that they make so much money off the big creators, that's irrelevant. You're still getting something for nothing in terms of free hosting unlimited 4k video free hosting unlimited live streaming bandwidth viper i ended up paying a ridiculous bill before i got like comcast to fix my unlimited plan stuff or whatever right. for using my own modem at the time i had some absurd bill because of live streaming one summer like i had some absurd i think you remember this back in like 2018 i had some absurd internet bill it was ridiculous and it's like oh so that's the cost of just the bloody bandwidth that i would have to pay if I had to pay YouTube for my bandwidth on my live streaming and on my mm -hmm. uploads. So just for the data plan, if you were paying for the data that you move up and down to YouTube, the way you would with your internet service provider and with a web hosting company, you'd be paying out the nose for that. YouTube's giving it to you for free. YouTube is giving you a ton of services for free. YouTube has engineers that they pay. They do all these things. And people complain so much about, oh, they're monetizing me. It's like you are getting so much for free, you couldn't afford to pay for YouTube if they made you pay what they are worth. Mm. Like, if you had to pay for hosting your videos, you couldn't afford it. And back in the day, back in my day, back in the old days, like Casey Neistat could tell you about this. So if you ever interview Casey, he could tell you he went viral on the internet before there was a YouTube, and he could tell you how much he had to pay. His viral video was racking up a bill. They were scrambling, finding an empty credit card to pay it. So like, keep the video up because the news was covering it and he was blowing up from that and getting job offers from that because this is before YouTube. Like Casey Neistat could tell you how revolutionary just being able to host videos on the internet for free and have people watch them and discovering them, how underpriced that is because it's free. 
and what it used to cost not that long ago. Well, relatively for most people, it's a long time ago because let's face it, most YouTube creators are like in their 20s now. So like when you talk about how the world was literally just 18, 20 years ago, they haven't lived in a world at an age significantly where their brain was developed. They haven't lived in a world where YouTube videos didn't exist. So they don't understand and they don't know any better. Back. It's funny. Uh, you talk about uh, Casey Neistat and him racking up the bill because when you were talking about YouTube and uh, how much it cost the whole video, you didn't even mention the fact that YouTube is doing it globally. They're, they got servers all over the world. So we're talking about getting your video disseminated to the entire world. That <laughs> You're definitely not going to be able to afford that, especially with all these countries and their different taxes and, and, and laws and stuff that you have to abide by. It's, it's a lot that we don't even need to get into as creator, but yeah, we, we couldn't afford to do it on our own. Not at all. But yeah, you all, like I said, I just wanted to record this podcast real quick just to put it out there that, listen, man, it's not always going to be an ideal situation for you as a creator or as a person, as an adult human being. But I, what I said at the beginning of the podcast holds weight, and it will always hold weight. Experience trumps everything, especially if you're trying to get like a real world job. They want experience. They don't care about your college degree. They don't care about your certification. They care what experience do you have that pertains to the job that they are trying to hire you for. And if you can get that through an unpaid internship, then you better jump on that. It's just that simple. If you can get paid, even better. But if you can get the relevant experience, not getting paid, if you have the capacity to do it and it, it won't wreck you, then you need to get on that. Because that's, this is real life we're talking about. And as creator, we were already doing it. A lot of you are already working for free anyway, trying to grow your YouTube channel because YouTube's not paying you anyway. Even if you're monetized, you're only making pennies right now if you're a newer creator. So let's not kid ourselves out here. Go ahead, Roberto. So, like, Viper, if I were to go off of just the theoretical, not just what I charge, but I just took like my yearly income and then divided it by working 50 weeks out of the year for theoretically 40 hours. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, basically, I just determined what the, my theoretical, if we go to wages, I figured out what the value of an hour of my time should kind of be just based on how much I make. Because I mean, that's what one does, right? Right. So whose time is more valuable? If I hire an intern and let's say I paid them something in the minimum wage area between 10 and 15 an hour, whose hour is more valuable, mine or theirs? Yours. So that means that, okay, if we're going to all be paid what we're worth, then for me teaching you, here's my invoice. They would be at a, if you can't, if you can't afford to work for free, then the reality is you also can't afford my time to be taught. That's real. That also, if you can't afford to work for free, then you can't afford to pay for the access to the resources the job provides. You can't afford that software. You can't afford any of the uh, accommodations that the office building provides. If we're talking about exchange and we're talking about who's being theoretically exploited, but again, they would say, well, you, you have all of that already and I don't have anything. It's like, and again, okay, then I'll deal with someone who has it. It's not for you. If that's the, like real talk, it's not, it'd be nice, but it's not owed to you for your level to be accommodated. It's an opportunity. You don't have to take it. You want to because it's FOMO. You feel that if you don't take it and someone else has it, then they have an advantage over you, which maybe that's true. So you want that their advantage, but you don't want to qualify for the advantage. 
And like you said, if you don't take it, either someone else will or they will find somebody else who will take the opportunity if you don't want it. So someone's going to take it regardless if you take it or not. Right. Because the thing is, if it's not you and if you are as valuable as you believe you are, then somebody will pay you that. So go to that opportunity. I'm 100 percent. I'm not saying you shouldn't ever get paid. I'm saying that if that person doesn't want to, everyone has the right to reject you, Viper. Everyone has the right to reject you. Everyone has the right to disqualify you based on their needs, wants, requirements, boundaries, culture, whatever it is. Everyone has the right to say no to you. Yep. So why can't we respect people's boundaries? Like, here's the thing. There are people who will say yes to what I'm offering. That doesn't mean that it's a bad offer. It means a bad offer for you. Oh, you don't want to work at my company because we don't do it your way. Okay, cool. Somebody will say yes to that. I mean, well, like, have you heard any company say, oh, we can't get enough interns? I don't think I've never heard that. No. Have you heard any company say we can't get enough interns, which means that there is enough people that can handle the opportunity without feeling exploited. There's enough people who can handle the opportunity without having to live off of ramen. There's enough people who can handle the opportunity and be bettered for it. Now, also what you could tell people, people say I had this horrible experience, but I'm like, did it improve your career prospects and lead to an ultimately better life? I would argue that the more exploitative thing is the overall massive amount of debt the college education system as a whole produces is far more exploitative and far more predatory than unpaid internships. And it's not close. Mm. That could be a whole other podcast for another day. But uh, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm saying people rationalize everything. Oh, yeah. They rationalize that like people will defend getting into 60,000 student loan debt to better their life, but they won't defend a net negative on $10 an hour to better their options. Listen, there are a lot of avenues out here as a human being or as a creator to make yourself better. It's up to you how you want to take those opportunities that may or may not protect themselves. Unpaid internships are opportunities, okay? The example I'll use before we get out of here real quick is like, let's say you want to work in tech, right? Let's say you're like, you're about to graduate college or maybe you're about to graduate high school and you want to work in tech. Obviously, Apple, Google, Samsung are some of the biggest companies in tech. So you mean to tell me if you want to be in tech and let's say an Apple or a Google or a Samsung is offering an unpaid internship, you mean to tell me that you would not jump at the opportunity to work at Apple, Samsung or a Google just because they're not going to pay you to do the internship? You will be a fool at that point. Like that is no. Having Apple or Google or Samsung on your resume is worth much more than what they're not going to pay you, okay, for the unpaid internship. So that's my, yeah, that's my point. It's like, you have to weigh the opportunity cost, but people are going, oh, but my rent, oh, but my bills. It's like, okay, the the requirement of an adult is to be like responsible and self-sufficient, which means, okay, then you can't take that opportunity and somebody else can get it. Oh, well, if that opportunity doesn't accommodate my situation, that opportunity shouldn't exist is the real argument. Their argument is, Either internships should be paid or they shouldn't exist. And I'm like, no, an opportunity that isn't for you isn't a reason for an opportunity to not exist. But that's what the argument really boils down to. If this opportunity doesn't work for my circumstances, it shouldn't exist is what the argument boils down to. And I disagree with that. Oh, companies who don't do this shouldn't exist. I disagree with that. Go work for places that do what you want them to do as a matter of their standard and culture, but also don't go in these places and then think that you're entitled to turn everything upside down to suit yourself. The answer to that should be respectfully no. 
It's funny because me and Roberto had a similar conversation recently about remote workers. Now, I'm of the mindset that I feel like more companies need to understand that remote work is a thing and it's not going away and they have to incorporate it kind of into their offerings, even if it's a hybrid model. And Roberto arguing a similar argument that he's done on his podcast and saying like, no, companies should not have to change their culture. If remote work is not a part of their culture, they should have to change it. And I'm like, listen, that, that's no, all I been think, well. I think that competition is good for people and it's good for the consumer. And I think that it'll prove itself. If remote work is the future, if remote work is so great, it'll prove itself. Somebody will build a company that competes and offers that and get the best talent if that's true. If that's true, the market will prove that it's true. But if it doesn't, then it doesn't. Because again, remember what my argument was. Every content creator would be happier if YouTube hired 25,000 on-site working at the offices in California, on the campus in Cal Southern California, human reviewers, human reviewers for all your copyright issues, human reviewers for all your monetization if viewers um, situation. If you're a U.S. content creator, you would love for YouTube to hire 25,000 on-site employees that work 40 hours a week to be human reviewers for your content on copyright and community guidelines violations and for your monetization approval to be human reviewed by the 25,000 workers that they would hire to work on site at YouTube. YouTube doesn't have that. YouTube has, God, what was it? Less than 10,000 US employees that work on site. Most of the review team, if I'm not mistaken, works remotely. And a lot of it is non-US and overseas. So Oh, would the customer experience, the user experience, the creator experience of YouTube be better with people working at YouTube headquarters with all the resources and all the oversight or with what we have where it's outsourced to everyone working remote and overseas? Every YouTube content creator would rejoice on Twitter tomorrow, Viper, if YouTube had a you work in the office policy and we're going to increase the staff by 25,000 people to accommodate the U.S. creators that speak English are right here and that where we're looking over their shoulder, every YouTube creator would be happier. And my argument is that you can get those same amount of people that work remotely, but they can work remotely inside the United States. And I personally don't think it would be that much different, but you feel like them being in person would be different. Them being in person would be different because when you're a YouTube content creator and you have these issues, you lose so much money, so many views every minute that the problem goes unsolved because someone can't get access to someone in their resource team to escalate the issue. If you're a content creator, you suffer the anxiety every hour that that copyright strike or that monetization claim is on your channel because you're losing money, you're losing reach, you're having anxiety, you're like, oh God, and if another strike happens, my channel's canceled completely. And then, oh, if you're canceled, your channel is hacked, like Linus Tech Tips. Like YouTubers would be happy if there was a team of 2,000 security experts on site at YouTube at headquarters that have access to their leadership team, their resources, to everything they need, instead of all they have is a laptop and they're at home and they have to wait for somebody to pick up the DM or the message on the other side of the country or whatever, or time zone differences. No, they would be happier. Like YouTube creators would be happier if there was a security and hacking team that was like literally 10 times bigger than it is and had like 2000 people if they were all in, on site at California, or maybe if they had a team that's on site in California and then another side team that's on site in New York to handle flex hours, like YouTube creators would be happier with on site teams that were bigger and more robust than skeleton crews of remote workers. Yeah, I, I can understand that. Yeah. That, that is the one thing about being in person that thing can be handled in a more quicker uh, way than remotely for sure. Yeah. And when your YouTube channel is hacked, you would love to know that someone can just literally walk 
10 feet away and get an answer on an escalation instead of having to wait for the phone to connect and the time zone difference. Oh, so-and-so's out of the office now. Those are uh, like, or know that somebody is dealing with it right then and there instead of dealing with it and dealing with their screaming toddler in the background. There you go. True story. Like we'd be happier as creators if there were just more people working on site around the clock to deal with our issues. But I understand from the employee standpoint, how great it is to work at home in theory and remote and all those things. But you know, at the end of the day, what is great is when the customer gets what they're paying for or what they expect or what, or the people who rely on these things are served properly uh, in that partnership. You know, there has to be an exchange of value that happens, but I think we have a culture that just says, well, what about me just getting what I want? And at the end of the day, it's all about the customer and what they want and what they need for sure. Bingo. Yeah. Roberto, it's always been a pleasure having you on the podcast, my dude. Thank you for making the time, man. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on these deep dives. And, you know, I love answering creator questions. I know this one's a little bit different. And I know not everyone's going to be happy with my answers here, but I think that, you know, I'm just trying to play all sides here and be a rational actor. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, we got to be logical about this stuff. And I appreciate your, your being logical and rational. So thank you for that. Appreciate you guys listening to Tube Talk. Y'all know I will be back next week with another episode of Tube Talk presented by Vid IQ. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tube Talk brought to you by VidIQ. Head over to vidiq.com slash tube talk for today's show notes and previous episodes. Enjoy the rest of your video making day.